Hello and welcome back to today's episode. Uh, Today I'm going to be focusing on chapter 3 of the behavioral sciences chapter of the MCAT review. And um, we'll be learning about learning and memory and a bunch of other stuff. So I'll be getting into detail right in a second. And I think personally this is where it starts getting more interesting because it's still a lot of memorization. But uh, you start to see more behavioral aspects to um, the behavioral sciences and all that. So... Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Okay, so let's begin by distinguishing two terms that start the chapter off. So the first one is habituation, and the second is dishabituation. And you probably might have learned about this in Psychology 101 or Psychology 100, whatever you took. Um, But just as a refresher, habituation is, um, by the way, this is um, with regards to stimulus. So habituation is when you have exposure to a stimulus for multiple periods of time. And this uh, this can cause a decrease in the response to that stimulus. Um, So for example, uh, the first time you see blood, you might pass out, right? But then after a while, uh, let's say you go into med school and you're forced to see blood, even though it's not your thing, but you're probably going to become used to it unless you really have something strongly against blood. But this also applies with like spiciness. Uh, Let's say you're eating a bag of hot chips. At first, it's burning your mouth off. And after you start getting more into it, start eating chips more, you're going to feel like it's not spicy at all. So those are two examples of habituation. And then dishabituation is when you recover from habituation, if that makes sense. So this habituation is basically like me taking a break from eating hot chips for a while. And then I go back six months later and I try another bag of hot chips. That bag of hot chips is probably going to be really spicy for me because of the dishabituation process that occurred. So those are the two basics of how we tend to respond to stimuli. So next, I'm going to be going into different types of learning. So we have associative learning and we have observational learning, but the lengthier one is associative learning and there's a lot of components to this. All right, so in associative learning, there's classical conditioning and then there's operant conditioning. So let's start with classical conditioning. Classical conditioning includes unconditioned stimuli, conditioned stimuli, conditioned responses and unconditioned responses. All right, so an unconditioned stimuli um, this can range from a sort of, uh, from an assortment of things such as like um, you have a reflex response to something. So let's say uh, an unconditioned stimuli could be a piece of steak, right? I'm gonna go with Pavlov's classic experiment with the dogs. So the unconditioned stimulus was a piece of steak. All right, and then that will elicit an unconditioned response. So when you're thinking of a big nice steak being cooked up or you smell it in the kitchen what's the condition or i'm sorry unconditioned response that that's going to elicit well you're going to start to salivate or you're going to start to get hungry so that's the unconditioned response to an unconditioned stimulus all right and then in the case of pavlov's experiment he dealt with dogs because he knew that um food or certain meats would make them salivate so that's the unconditioned aspect of that experiment and then the conditioned stimulus Uh, is something that you start to associate with an unconditioned um, stimulus. All right, so for example, um, 
you go, uh, or I'm sorry. So in Pavlov's experiment, he used a bell. Um, and at first, a bell is a neutral stimulus because it doesn't make you respond in any way if it's just like a little bell being rung, especially for the dogs. They didn't think much of it until he started to ring a bell every time the food was ready, right? So this then became a conditioned stimulus because every time that the bell was rung, they would start to salivate. And salivation to the bell is a conditioned response to the conditioned stimulus. So a lot of conditions, um, <laughs> and it's going to be hard to um, memorize if you don't truly understand it. So maybe go over the experiment. It's called uh, Ivan pa Pavlov's experiment. And it's very famous, and it might actually be on the test because it's very popular. Okay, so uh, there's a few other things to consider when we're talking about classical conditioning. So a stimulus can go through several phases. Okay, so one of them is extinction. So this means that the stimulus no longer works. So let's say in the case of Pavlov's experiment, let's say he kept ringing the bell and they kept salivating, but he wouldn't bring the food out anymore. He stopped bringing the meat. So after a while, the dogs would realize that the bell no longer means anything to them. So they would stop salivating because they would no longer associate it with the food. All right. And then there's also something called generalization that can happen. And this is when sti a stimulus similar to the actual one initiates a response. So let's say um, Pavlov would ring a little bell, uh, like a handbell, and it would make like a little ringing response uh, or a little ringing sound uh, that would cause the dogs to salivate. And then let's say... Pavlov had a few guests over and they started ringing the doorbell. So the dogs can generalize that doorbell as the same sound or same stimulus as the bell and might start to salivate when someone rings the doorbell just because of generalization. And then discrimination is the exact opposite. So that's uh, when the dogs begin to distinguish the two similar sounds. Um, and yeah, so they start to only know that the bell specifically is uh, indicating or an indicator for food, so they'll only salivate when the bell is rung instead of the doorbell as well. So that's discrimination. All right, so that's one part of associative learning. The next part is called operant conditioning. And operant conditioning is the study of how consequences change voluntary behaviors. So you could think of parenting, for example, because a lot of operant conditioning. Um, it can be seen in parenting styles, different parenting styles. So um, there's a few terms you should know. There is positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, negative punishment, and positive punishment. Now, in this case, when you're thinking of positive and negative, you don't want to think of positive as a good thing, and you don't want to think of negative as, an, as a bad thing. It just means um, it, it, take the words literally, basically. So uh, positive in these cases just means the addition of something, and negative means taking away of something. So um, even though something's a negative uh, reinforcement, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's actually good. It's only bad when it's a punishment. All right. So let me give some examples of each one. So let's say, um, let's say you're trying to convince your child to do their homework. An example of a positive reinforcement would be giving them candy for completing their homework, right? And then uh, let's say that child also has a curfew. So if you're telling them that you'll remove the, their curfew for them, that's an example of negative reinforcement because you're taking away something that motivates them, uh, that will motivate them to do better. So those are that's the difference. Positive, you're adding something to encourage, and negative, you're taking away something. 
to encourage. All right, and then there's positive punishment and negative punishment. So an example of positive punishment is, let's say, uh, let's say that that same child doesn't do their homework. So as a result, you start to pile on more practice problems for them. You make them do more practice problems and tell them that um, they must do them or else they get a punishment, right? And then that's positive punishment. And then an example of negative punishment, yes, negative punishment would be uh, telling that child that they can no longer have desserts that night. You're taking away their desserts because they aren't doing their homework on time and they're not listening. So those are the four main kinds of uh, reinforcement styles or and punishment styles. Um, all right, so next I'm going to move on to a few phrases that you should know with regards to operant learning. So uh, escape learning is the first one. And this is when unpleasant stimuli or st an unpleasant stimulus causes uh, desired behavior. All right, so uh, this this essentially means that um, it's like it's like a form of punishment essentially. So um, let's say that I'm walking outside and I. Uh, I, um, okay, let's say I'm actually biking outside, and I want someone to move out of the way because I don't want to move for them, uh, and I don't want them to get hit either. So I start yelling at them, like at the top of my lungs. So that's an example of escape learning because that's an unpleasant stimulus that's causing um, a desired behavior. So I'm sh shouting at them, and they know that shouting is a bad sign, the person on the road. So they're going to move, and that's the desired behavior. All right, so that's escape learning. Next, there's avoidance learning. And this is when uh, one displays a desired behavior to avoid unpleasant uh, stimulus. All right, so this is quite the opposite of escape learning. This is instead you're doing something to avoid um, something else. So let's say um, back, back to the bike scenario. Let's say I'm biking on the road and someone's standing on the street, but that person knows that I'm going to yell at them to move. So instead of going um, going through the whole yelling thing and getting embarrassed in front of everyone, they'll probably just move. And that's an example of avoidance learning. And then there's also something called shaping, and this is slowly uh, training with reward. So this is the most ideal uh, way in some, in some cases to achieve something because you're slowly training yourself. Um, so let's say right now you're studying for the MCAT. And you're gonna slowly train yourself uh, by rewarding yourself with, let's say, a coffee every time you complete a few chapters here and there. So that's shaping. All right, so now that we've covered associative learning and gone through some examples, we can move on to observational learning. And uh, this, this method of learning is most commonly associated with the Bobo doll experiment. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's basically when, uh, uh, I don't remember who did the experiment exactly. I don't know the scientist, but uh, definitely search it up. Uh, but anyways, in this experiment, uh, kids were given a Bobo doll, uh, which was this inflatable doll that would uh, spring back up if it was knocked down, right? And it was popular in the 1900s. Um, I forget when, but I, I believe it was the mid-1900s. But anyways, so um, these researchers gave them these dolls and then uh, in some instances, they would the researchers would start smacking their own dolls 
and they would see if the kids would become violent with the dolls, and the result was that they would because they were essentially copying what they saw. So this kind of learning um, can be associated with the phrase monkey see, monkey do. So the kids were seeing the kind of behavior um, that the other scientists were, or were doing or the researchers, and uh, as a result, the kids were copying them. So you should know that mirror neurons are involved in this, and this help, these neurons help mirror actions of others um, by firing rapidly. So uh, mirror neurons help us with observational learning. Okay, so next to go into different processing, methods of processing and memorization, um, there are two processes. So there's controlled processing and auto, uh, automatic processing. And um, just a simple explanation of each, controlled processing is when you make an effort to memorize, for example, flashcards. Uh, you make flashcards to learn about the psychology section of the MCAT. And then automatic processing is when you gain information without uh, effort. This can be like um, me going to my favorite Dunkin' store, and then I start, I start to pick up that they add extra caramel to my coffee. All right, that's information I gained without effort. I just happened to have experienced it multiple times, and that's why I know it. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the different ways to encode the meaning of information when you're memorizing. So this is kind of like uh, different ways of essentially memorizing things. Okay, so there's visual encoding, and this is basically when you visualize things. So if you're a visual learner, this might not be the best way for you to learn. You might search up videos on YouTube instead, which is something that I would do, for example. There's acoustic learning, um, and this is like storing sounds. So uh, you start to uh, bring up sounds from your memory, and let's say, I'm listening to the, you're listening to this podcast or I've listened to different podcasts, I'll start to remember certain phrases from the podcast. So I'm remembering the sounds. And then there's elaborative encoding. And this is when you link something to a previous memory. And that's kind of how you retrieve the memory. There's also something called semantic encoding. And uh, this is when you attach meaningful context to a memory. And then last but not least, there's self-reference effect which is putting something into the context of your own life in order to help you memorize. And um, in the book, in the MCAT review book that I'm going through, they actually list a few specific ways to help people memorize. And this might be helpful right now, since this is the beginning of the psychology section or the behavioral sciences section. So here we go. The first one listed is mnemonics. And um, if you don't know what mnemonics are, they're basically shortcuts to help us memorize. So for example, um, uh, Q equals MCAT, right? So that's a thermodynamic equation. Um, and it's actually Q equals M delta T uh, or MC delta T. Um, but you would remember as Q equals MCAT because it's easier to remember, right? Simple, self-explanatory. All right. And then there's something called the method of loci. So this is associating each item in a list with a known location. All right, so let's say I'm shopping for eggs, milk, and butter. And I need a good way to memorize this. Uh, by the way, I don't do this myself, but some people might memorize in this way. So when I go to the store and I want to retrieve what I was supposed to bring or what I was so supposed to buy, um, I might picture, okay, 
egg in the bedroom of my house. Like, I'll picture eggs sitting on the bed of, of my room, right? And then I'll picture spilled milk in the hallway. And then I'll picture a big stick of butter just sitting in my living room on the couch. So this is a way of um, memorizing called, once again, the method of loci. And it's when you associate items into a specific location in order to retrieve them better. So once again, might not work for everyone, but some people find it very helpful. Okay, and then there's something called the peg word system, which is associating a number with an item. Self-explanatory, once again. And then there's chunking. So uh, chunking is, <laughs> it's an interesting method because I think it takes a lot of effort to do, but it works for people, I guess. So um, let's say you are trying to memorize bus, car, truck, and plane, right? So you probably would chunk those together. And you would memorize instead, Enel Pukar Truck Sub, right? And that doesn't make any sense, but um, that's basically the words chunked together backwards. And I'm not sure in which instance you would use this, um, but yeah, that's another way of memorizing that has been recorded by researchers. All right, so now I'm going to start getting into the important stuff, like the stuff that I've seen so many questions on on the practice tests. All right, so this is the different types of memory. I know we talked about ways to memorize, but this is the actual classification for memory. And there's quite a few, they might get confusing, so I recommend reviewing them multiple times. All right, so the first is sensory memory. Now, sensory memory doesn't last long, but it involves all the senses. And within sensory memory, um, there's two types of memory. There is iconic memory and echoic memory. And um, I would remember sensory memory because it involves all the senses, but um, yeah, I guess you just have to remember that it's short and it doesn't last long. But anyways, so under that, iconic and echoic memory. Iconic memory is fast decaying memory of visual stimuli, all right? And then echoic memory is fast decaying memory of auditory stimuli. So iconic, just think of I, iconic. And then echoic, just think of an echo and think of your ear listening to an echo, all that. So that's the way I would remember these two. And once again, they would fit into the category of sensory because those are two different senses in our, in our life that we use in our life. All right. Next, we have short-term memory. And if you've joked about it before, how you have short-term memory loss, then you probably know what it means. So it's a real thing. It's when memory fades over 30 seconds without rehearsal. So let's say I, I'm i trying to memorize uh, a certain word for the MCAT, a certain phrase or something. If I don't rehearse it and after 30 seconds I uh, forget it, then that means that was a short-term memory. All right. And it's cool to know that we have a memory capacity of about 7 plus or minus 2. So what this means is that our memory capacity uh, to memorize like fast and uh, recall recall it back is about seven terms. So if I were to have a bunch of flashcards displayed in front of me with different words, I can probably recall about five to nine. I think it's also important to know that short-term memory is housed in the hippocampus, which is something that you'll probably be more familiar with once you're familiar with the parts of the brain. Um, but yeah, just know the hippocampus is involved with short-term memory. All right, 
So moving on to the third type of memory, uh, there's working memory, which is a, a memory that allows for simple math. So this is involved in comprehension and reasoning and all that. And this is also housed in the hippocampus. All right, so that's pretty self-explanatory. Next, there's long-term memory, which is the exact opposite of short-term memory. And rehearsal makes um, short-term memory become long-term memory. So if something was a short-term memory, it can definitely be converted as long as you keep practicing. So let's say those flashcards, I forgot them because I only saw them once. Um, if I keep remembering or going over them, then eventually they can go into my long-term memory, which is what we want, especially for exams like this. And um, you should also know that long-term memory does have to do with the hippocampus, um, but not in the same way. So it's stored in the into the hippocampus, and eventually it is converted into, or I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, not converted. Eventually it goes into the cerebral cortex. So just know that short-term memory and working memory are associated with the hippocampus. Long-term memory starts out in the hippocampus. You can think of it like how long-term memory starts out as short-term memory, and then it eventually goes into the cerebral cortex. Okay, and then there's a few more subcategories to long-term memory. Um, so within long-term memory, there's implicit, and then there's explicit memory. So implicit memory does not require conscious recall. Um, so yeah, implicit, think of implicit, implied. Um, it's just implied that you know these things. So um, this includes skills, habits, and conditioned responses. So a good example for implicit memory, um, let's say that growing up, your parents always told you good morning as soon as you wake up, right? Um, or they sang you a certain song. All right. So after singing that song for you for so long, eventually you're not going to need to recall that the lyrics to that song. It's just kind of kind of be ingrained in you. So even while you grow up, you're still going to remember the lyrics just because it's been repeated so many times that you no longer require conscious recall. Versus when you're learning a new song, you'll probably look up the lyrics in order to memorize it better. So that's implicit memory. And then there's explicit memory. And <laughs> once again, there's subcategories to this. So explicit memory does require conscious recall. So that's just the difference. So you're explicitly recalling it. That's how I'd like to remember it. And under explicit memory, there's episodic and semantic. So just think of when you're consciously trying to recall something. Um, let's say, let's talk about episodic, for example. So episodic memory would be when you're trying to recall certain events or experiences. So it's like, it's like when your friend goes, oh, hey, remember the time when X, Y, Z? Then that's an example of episodic memory because you're trying to remember, oh, that time you guys went to a party together and you're trying to recall a certain experience. Um, and then semantic memory, under explicit memory, is facts and concepts. So instead of experiences, let's say you remember learning about memory <laughs> in your psychology class. Uh, so semantic memory is when you're trying to recall, hey, what was sensory memory, for example? And if you forgot this already, then that went into your short-term memory. But anyways, um, so yeah, that basically summarizes all the types of memory. And I do recommend learning them a little bit better just because they are repeated a lot <laughs> in practice questions for some reason. Okay. 
so there's still more to memories that I'm gonna go about uh, or go talk about. Um, so there's a few terms uh, terms that you should know. So there's retrieval, which is recalling previously learned information. There's recognition, which is identifying information that was previously learned. And then there's relearning. Um, and this is when it tends to be easier to learn something the second time. So if you've gone over your books three or four times, it's probably easier the fourth time than it was the first time to memorize. Um, so yeah, once again, it's retrieval, recalling, recognition, identifying, and relearning, basically relearning, but easier. Okay, so we've talked a lot about different kinds of memory and different methods to retrieve memory, uh, but there's also certain conditions that help us memorize better or that subconsciously just help our memory. All right, so there's only two, but the first is state-dependent memory. And uh, that's when someone remembers better if they're in the same mental state as they were when they were learning that memory. Uh, so essentially, um, they have to be in the same mental state uh, as when they were, once again, like rehearsing what they were learning or trying to memorize something. Um, let's say also that you're studying, you're in a good mood, you're with your friends, and then you go into the exam, you're likely to... Um, retrieve those memories more easily if you're also in a good mood, for example. Um, but let's say you were happy with your friends and all that, and then all of a sudden, on exam day, something gets you upset. Then it's going to be hard, harder for you to retrieve those memories because of your mental state. So that's what the state-dependent memory um, uh, definition says. But there's also a second one, uh, which is called the serial position effect. So uh, this is when people usually remember the first and last words on a list because of the position. And um, this could be like, let's say you are reading a long paragraph and you're asked to memorize as much as you can. You're probably gonna remember the first few words or the first word and the last few words just because of the positioning of the paragraph. Uh, so that's the serial position effect. Now, there are two major conditions that affect memory. And the first one, you might already have guessed it, it's Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is associated with the loss of acetylcholine neurons. Um, and this is also when neurofibrillary uh, tangles. So there's tangles. And then this is also associated with when beta amyloid plaques, I mean, with beta amyloid plaques, which is when... Um, proteins in the brain incorrectly fold. So uh, you'll learn more about this in the biology uh, section of the MCAT, um, where it goes a little bit more into depth of how this specifically happens. But yeah, uh, there's also another condition called Karsakoff syndrome, which is very important to know as well. And this is me memory loss caused by thiamine deficiency in the brain. Um, so oftentimes, people with Karsakoff syndrome uh, experience confabulation, which is fake memories, or they have uh, retrograde amnesia or anterior grade amnesia. So just as I mentioned before, retrograde amnesia, um, think of retro, so before, it's any memories that were formed prior to uh, the condition. And then anterograde amnesia. Um, are memories or memory loss that occurs after the condition.
was obtained. Um, there's also something called agnosia or agnosia, and it's the loss of ability to recognize objects, people, or sounds. And this could be due to brain damage caused by things like a stroke. Uh, so yeah. Uh, there's also a curve of forgetting, which is, uh, it's just like a graph that you should know. And it basically just shows how as days go on, the percentage of word recall decreases. And it's it's a curve shape, so it's not exponentially decreasing, it's gradually. Um, and I like to think of this um, or associate it with how when you learn a language in high school and then you go to college, you don't immediately forget that language just out of the blue. So like it gradually starts to disappear from your memory. And that's because you don't practice it. So um, there's a few issues or confusion, uh, confusing factors that can occur um, with memory. So there's something called proactive interference. And this is when you're trying to remember something, but there's a retrieval error caused by old information mixing with new information. Um, and then there's something called retroactive interference, which is when new information causes the forgetting of old information. So to kind of go back to proactive interference, um, which is the first thing I just said, um, it, let's say that when you were little, you would go to Chuck E. Cheese a lot, you would play a certain game with a certain friend, and then a few years later, you started to go to a water park with a different friend. Now, as you grow old and you're trying to retrieve that memory, uh, you might associate you going to the water park with the friend that you went to Chuck E. Cheese with, for example. Um, so that's just like an example I could think of off the top of my head. Um, and for retroactive interference, uh, this could be like learning a language. So let's say you learned uh, Spanish in high school, um, but you kind of stopped learning it and then you're forgetting it over the years. Uh, but in college, you start learning French. So when you learn that French, it might actually cause you to push out more of that Spanish because you no longer need that Spanish anymore. So you're making more space for that French. So that's what retroactive interference is. And we are almost done with this chapter, uh, but there are a few instances where memory can also be false. So other than the ones I just mentioned, um, there's something called false memories. So this happens a lot especially with uh, when pe older people try to recall memories from their childhood. Um, this is when you remember something incorrectly or something that didn't happen. So oftentimes, uh, there are instances where people will tell you that something happened when you were little, and you might not even remember it, but you start making these false memories because of that. So um, what I just described, actually, um, it goes into the next section, which talks about misinformation effect. So mi the misinformation effect is when outside information dilutes a memory, making it false. So just as I mentioned with the example uh, of someone telling you a memory that you don't remember, this can also be with a memory that you do remember, but the details are, are switched because someone else told you something different, you know? So let's say you remember going to school, um, and taking a cooking class and then um your friend goes oh hey do you remember that one time during our cooking class when we cooked uh i don't know we made lasagna for example with our teacher and let's say that you actually made spaghetti now because that person put it in your mind that you made lasagna you're probably going to start thinking that you learned how to make lasagna in that cooking class and then this also kind of goes into the next 
and last thing I'm going to talk about, um, which is the intrusion memory, which is when a memory is similar, um, but is not due to an outside source, but rather a common theme. Um, so like, essentially, to kind of backtrack that, because I don't think that make, made sense, but this is when outside information still dilutes uh, a memory and makes it false, but this isn't due to someone telling you that something happened, it's just due to uh, two similar scenarios. So once again, with the Chuck E. Cheese and the water park example, uh, that could be an intrusion, an example of an intrusion memory because um, those are two places of entertainment and they were both occurring when you were younger and you went with a friend each time. So that might cross over and create a new memory or erase certain parts of a memory. And another example of an intrusion memory to make it more clear is let's say you go to New York um, New York City specifically, and you celebrate New Year's. And then the next uh, New Year, you spend it in Chicago. So you might mix those memories together. So you might be like, oh, I remember when I went to Chicago to celebrate the New Year's and I did XYZ, but XYZ actually happened in New York City. And yeah, that's it for memory. That concludes it. Um, it's a lot of stuff to take in. Once again, I didn't expect it to be such a dense chapter, but um, this is very important because I've seen a lot of questions asking to distinguish the difference between the different types of memory. And as long as you can solidify um, the major parts of memory, so for example, sensory memory, short-term, working, long-term, and the subcategories of each, uh, you should be good to go with this. And just know um, the conditions in which memories are, are affected. So like Alzheimer's and uh, Karsakoff syndrome. And also be familiar with amnesia and the different types of amnesia. Uh, but that's it. That ends the, the chapter for today. So thank you all for listening. And I hope you have a great day and good luck with your studying.